This is a HeadGum Podcast. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. Shannon, CG, Lauren, and Mel form the Nerds of Prey. A group of ladies bonded by comics, gaming, film, television, and fandom culture. Hang out with them bi-weekly as they dig into the very things that make them loud and proud nerds. Available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. Also, check out their Patreon at patreon.com backslash nerds of prey. My name is Idris Elba, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Tommy Davidson. You listen to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. That's right. It exists. Hello, everyone. My name is Malik Forte. I am a professional nobody, but you might have seen my work on Nerdist.com or soon Bleacher Report, and you are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Effie Brown, and I'm a producer of Dear White People, Real Women Have Curves, and recently you probably saw me on HBO's Project Greenlight. And you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, this is Gina Prince-Bicewood, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hey, I'm Jean Grey. I'm a polymath. If you don't know what that is, look it up. This is Black Girl Nerd Podcast. Yeah. Five, six, seven, eight. Holla, boys and girls, it's the BGN. Coming from the Marvel world to the DC friends. All the way from Hollywood to the PCN. She defends everyone from sleazy men. Won't apologize for spitting Shonda Rhimes. The space that we make is never colonized. Talking games and movies that actors were. Better shake your booties for Black Girl Nerds. for tuning in to episode 128 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled TIFF Special Edition, featuring films Sighted Eyes Feeling Heart, Black Cop, The Mountain Between Us, and A Season in France, with special guests Tracy Heather Strain, Corey Bowles, Beau Bridges, Mandy Walker, Eric Abune, and Sandrine Bonaire. This is the last day of TIFF, and this is our wrap-up show, but guess what? We have several more, several more interviews to go. Uh, this is just a select few of what we captured at Toronto, and we're going to interview the filmmakers, the actors, and the crew behind some of these fantastic films. If you have not done so already, please check out our website at blackgirlnerds.com with all of our TIFF coverage that includes movie reviews and red carpet interviews. Also, I just want to say a special thanks to everyone who donated to our GoFundMe campaign. 
It was seven of us journalists that went out to Toronto to cover this festival and we needed some help. So we set up a GoFundMe to help cover our travel and lodging expenses as well as to hold a meetup. And you guys came through for us and we raised over $6,000. So I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. I hope that the coverage that you've seen so far on the website, on our YouTube channel, and now on the podcast is everything that you expected and more. And please, please, please share all of the information with anybody who had not had a chance to go to TIFF uh, to see what's coming out. And a lot of these movies are getting Oscar buzz. A lot of these films are going to be coming out in a theater near you. So it's great that we have the exclusive on some of these titles. And we can also provide you with some background and some feedback about what we thought about these films. And also talk to the creators behind it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this special edition of TIFF. BGN 128. Filmmaker Tracy Heather Strain delivers a moving account of the life of black playwright, communist, feminist, lesbian, and outspoken trailblazer Lorraine Hansberry. Tracy Heather Strain lives in Boston, where she's a professor at Northeastern University's Media and Screen Studies program. Her early work includes a credit as a second unit assistant on Marinaire's Mississippi Masala. Her documentary titles as director and producer include the episodes Bright Like a Sun and The Dream Keepers. For Blackside's Peabody Award-winning series, I'll Make a World, A Century of African American Art, and When the Bow Breaks for PBS's Unnatural Causes, Is Inequality Making Us Sick? She's the co-founder with filmmaking partner and husband Randall McLowry of the production company The Film Posse. Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart, co-produced with Mac Lowry, is her first independent documentary feature. Thanks for listening to this special Toronto International Film Festival edition of the Black Girl Nurse Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host. Very excited to sit down here with filmmaker Tracy Heather Strain. She is the documentary filmmaker behind the Lorraine Hansberry story called Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. Tracy, thank you so much for being on our show. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. We are excited to talk to you as well. Um, I just got through watching the film, and the title of this film comes from Lorraine's own writings. So what was it about the quote from her work which led you to select Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart as the show's title? Well, first of all, the quote is, one cannot live with sighted eyes and feeling heart and not know or re- and react to the miseries that afflict this world. Mm. And I picked that after trying, <laughs> thinking a long time about different titles. What is our film about? And we had decided that this film is about an artist activist. And I thought that Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart captured what motivated Lorraine. She saw things, she felt things, and then she acted. And in mm-hmm. her case, she tried to use words to, to change society. Yeah, I, I saw like a lot of her writings um, throughout the documentary. It was narrated by Nika Noni Rose. Actually, uh, the documentary is narrated by Latanya Richardson Jackson. Okay. And Nika Noni Rose is the voice of Lorraine Hansberry. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Okay, so um, what made you decide to tell 
such an intimate story about Lorraine's life. I saw To Be Young, Gifted, and Black the, at, a, at the Harrisburg Community Theater when I was at 17, and to, to Be Young, Gifted, and Black is a play about Lorraine Hansberry's life, and I was blown away. I didn't know anything about her, and I, I'd never heard of this person who had thoughts similar to mine and analyzed things in a similar way, obviously at a higher level than me, <laughs> especially at 17. And uh, I just... I just she just stayed with me, you know. Um, do you remember from the film when Lorraine is talking about Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Peacock, and she describes mm -hmm. she says that it entered her consciousness and stayed there. Yes. Well, that's what To Be Young, Gifted and Black, the play, did for me. It, it put Lorraine Hansberry in my head, and it stayed there back in the in the back. And then after I got out of college and I wasn't really happy about my career in advertising and direct marketing, I decided to switch into filmmaking, kind of taking on Spike Lee's call to make black films, and just got inspired to think that there should be a documentary about Lorraine Hansberry, and I kind of started a little bit of researching back then in the 80s, but nothing, of course, to the extent what I subsequently have done, but I, that's what, that was the original motivation, just to make a film, no one knew about her, people should know about her, yes. um, and then once you know, I really started working on the film, which I would say is 2004, work on this film. Um, it was, what story of Lorraine do you tell? You could tell so many different stories about her. And I hope that one thing that this film will do is inspire people to make other films about her and concentrate on other oh my things. God, that and, so great. <laughs> um, so I decided that since people only thought of Lorraine as um, a raisin in the sun, right. that I wanted to tell a story about the person beyond a raisin in the sun. Who is this person? Why was raisin in the sun made? And as you learned in the film, she saw raisin in the sun as a protest play. That's not how a raisin in the, a raisin in the sun is taught. It's taught as this play about dreams. It's a way of looking at the American dream. Of course, it's that. Mm -hmm. But she expect she was hoping that this piece of art would help move society to a place where, you know, people would feel badly about treating their new black neighbors badly and yeah. you know things like that and 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 that people would see themselves reflected maybe in that character um um uh you know the the white man who comes and tries to buy you know buy the house back mm -hmm. and then maybe be different i you know it didn't succeed <laughs> <laughs> but but she really did think that art had this pow great power to change things yeah, I mean, what I really love, too, about this documentary, as you mentioned, like, people think of Lorraine Hansberry associated with The Raisin in the Sun, but you peel off all these different layers of her life and her history from her childhood, her father, and I learned so much about her activism and her activism through her father. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the process of coming up with all of the research and all of this archival footage that we saw of Lorraine. Um, how did you uh, get through all that? Well, first of all, I didn't do it alone. There's a team of people that I worked with, in particular my husband, Randall McLowry. He's been supportive all along the way. And then executive producer Chiz Schultz is the person who had a lot of relationships with people like Harry Belafonte and Ruby Dee and, and, and Sidney Poitier. He's worked with most of them before. Um, and, and then other people. We've had armies of interns. And so, again, I did not do all this research myself, <laughs> um, but I did a lot of research yeah. myself, and I make, hist I make historical documentaries. Primarily, the way I stay alive in this world mm -hmm. is I work 
on historical documentaries, mostly for public television. That's what Randy and I do. And so we already knew how to organize a project like this. Mm-hmm. And um, But the process is you read books, you read everything that you can possibly find on the topic. We did that with Lorraine Hansberry, and, and over time more and more books came out. And you read books about topics that touch on Lorraine Hansberry. So I read books about black women radicals. When I first started the project, no one was writing books about black women as radicals. Mm. One of the benefits of this taking so long is that more scholarship on black women was done over time. And so around 2010, 2011, a lot of really interesting books that helped me kind of understand Lorraine and her time differently came out. And so that one, one of them was one of several was about black women as radicals. Another one was talking about the black press and how mm. that was how that changed and what how the Red Scare like ma- kind of sanitized the black press. Yeah, I used to always wonder in some ways why certain publications were kind of fluffy. Uh huh. And now I I realize, oh, they were probably not so much before, and then <laughs> got terrified that they were going to get shut down, and you know, kind of became just like. Look how look at how how much we've achieved, kind of publications, as opposed to kind of hitting issues hard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that that's kind of a little bit of the story. Um, I'd love to. I find that really interesting how the press changed because of over time. But for Lorraine's story touches on that. Lorraine's story touches on a, so many different aspects of life in yes. the 20th century, and all those things resonate. In, with today's society. Yeah, race, socioeconomic class, sexuality. I mean, when you were digging and finding all of this information about Lorraine, was there anything that surprised you the most about what you came up with? I think we were just constantly surpri- not surprised or like amazed at how relevant her words were. Mm. You know, that's I think the thing that always struck us. And and it was really hard to figure out what to keep in the film because we're like this is great and this is great and yeah. this is great our first rough cut was four hours long wow and <laughs> yeah and I think it's one of the first I think it is the first time I ever sent um, you know a cut to advisors mm-hmm. academic advisors um, because we got a large grant for the National Endowment for the Humanities and that's part of what you do and of course I, I'm, I'm happy to work I love having advisors to, to yeah. look at my work um but it's the first time we asked them, like, what could we take out? Mm. And no one really had any suggestions. We, we, wow. This film has to be at least half the size it is right now. Right. But there was, there's so much richness, and there's so many mm. stories that Lorraine touches on that haven't been told, mm. whether it's focused on Lorraine or not. There's just issues related to the African-American experience yes. that have not been presented on screen. And some of those things could be presented through Lorraine, but they wouldn't. They don't need to. They don't need to be. Yeah. But that's one reason why it was really difficult to pull things out because you're like, well, people don't know about this, and people don't know about this. So we hope to, if we can, get up the gumption to raise some more money. Mm-hmm. We would really love to have really rich videos on our own website that. Sh- that tell some of these stories that we haven't been able to, that we had to take out of the, um, the documentary. Also, we yeah. have some great um, Raisin in the Sun stories that we couldn't, we couldn't put in the documentary. Because, oh, you know, wow. we're trying to tell this narrative about the artist activist and when she succeeds and when 
you know, the ups and downs of that story and that trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so some certain things, you know, for storytelling reasons just didn't make it in. Yeah. I'm sure Sydney had some stories to tell you when you guys interviewed him. We did. He did. (laughs) Yes, he did. He he was fair. It was It was great. He was, it was, it was also, I didn't expect him to get so emotional. Yeah. And, uh, but we were really blessed, and he saw the film, and he really likes oh, it. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. He really loved it. Yeah, we were really happy to hear that. That's awesome. That's amazing. Well, I know um, you know you had some narrators on this, and Anika Noni Rose, she's a friend to us here on Black Girl Nerd. She's been a guest on our show. Um, how did you decide to get her on board? Because her voice sounds very similar to Lorraine's voice when you listen to the documentary. Yeah, that's a fun story. Um, we were in the middle of our Kickstarter campaign in 2014, and it was during the time that A Raisin in the Sun was on Broadway, starring Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. Latanya Richardson-Jackson, Anika Noni Rose, Sophia Okonita. And so we went to see it. We actually intentionally went to the preview, because one of the previews, because it was literally the anniversary of the opening of A Raisin in the Sun. So the whole team... Went up to. I live in Boston, Mm -hmm. and the people lived in Boston. Went up to New York, and the people in the New York area came, and we went to see the play, and we heard Anika Noni Rose doing Benita. And if for those who know things about the play and Lorraine, Lorraine says that the character Benita is kind of modeled after herself, Mm -hmm. and so she just had this quality that seemed very Lorraine-like to us. And so I don't know if it was the next day or, you know, shortly after, I tweeted to her, we'd love you to be a part of this project. And she tweeted back, too much to our surprise, I'd love to. And so uh, through my friend Jackie and um, uh, other people, what, this year when we finally were ready to record, you know, the voice of Lorraine Hansberry, we reconnected. And she remembered, she stood by her word, and, and she recorded. That's amazing. That is an absolutely amazing. It's, it's interesting to bring up the character of Benita, because I uh, was a thespian in high school. <laughs> and one of the monologues that I selected was from A Raisin in the Sun. So, you know, as a young black girl, I didn't have that many sources of material for monologues. And A Raisin in the Sun really resonated with me. Do you feel like that this uh, film is going to resonate with uh, younger audiences? I'm really hoping so. I, you know, you know, there's all this talk these days about young people not wanting to, wa- only wanting to watch short things. But I, I teach part time, and I don't think that's necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. I think that if there's a story that people are interested, no matter what age they are, mm-hmm. they're going to watch it. And I, I am hoping that the story we're presenting is something that will be inspiring. I want this film to inspire young people the way that To Be Young, Gifted, and Black inspired me. And so that's, 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 that's my ultimate goal for this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I really just wanted to make the film and have people know about her because she, was, she is so inspiring. Mm-hmm. And so I will consider it a success if we later find out that young people like the film and really respond to her. That's amazing. So I've got a really hard question for you. Um, Given the political climate today with Black Lives Matter and a current administration that's filled with white supremacists, 
Um, what do you think Lorraine would have to say about the current events that are happening today? Well, um, people ask me a lot what I think Lorraine would think about things. And I like to first say that Lorraine was really well read and really, really smart. Mm-hmm. And she had, she was a lifelong activist, someone who like grew up considering how to like achieve certain kinds of goals. So I feel like it's really hard for me to like know exactly how she would answer. Cause sometimes when I've looked at interviews that she's done and I thought I knew how she would answer, she surprises me in interviews from the past. Mm. So I don't like to, I don't want to presume I would, you know, know what she would say, but I, Obviously, she'd be outraged, and um, I think she would find it unacceptable, and I think she would be using the tools that exist now to fight. Um, you you know, think she'd be on Twitter? Oh, I, I think she'd be everywhere that yeah. you could be to stand up against um, oppression. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, she was standing on street corners. I, I, we looked everywhere to see if we could find a photograph of Lorraine Hansberry standing on a soapbox in Harlem because she said she made street corner speeches. And mm. we know from um, some other research that um, this one man, we did, it did this couldn't stay in the film. She was like a young Harriet Tubman standing on, um, uh, you know, the, on the soapbox, you know, giving speeches in Harlem. So if she was out wow. there standing on a soapbox in Harlem in the fifties. I'm sure she can be doing a lot more right now to to be speaking out against the things that are going on. Yeah. It's I mean, I think then, you know, I look at what happened in the past and how she responded to the four little girls being bombed, right? Yeah. And that was like a rallying cry for a lot of activists. The organization that sponsored the town hall um uh forum Black Revolution and White Backlash was formed in the aftermath of the bombing. There was like Ossie Davis, uh, Ruby D, James Baldwin, John O'Killens, uh, uh, several people. Mm-hmm. And um, part of their their idea was, what can we as artists do to like make change? What, can, what, what how can we add our voices? And I think similar similarly, Michael Brown is at like a, a rallying you know moment in in our current society. Mm-hmm. And I think she would have been all over that as well. Yeah, I think so, too. So on to some easier, fun <laughs> questions. <laughs> no, I like hard questions. I'm not trying away, but I just do. I just feel like I don't feel I'm equipped to, like, answer for Lorraine. Right. If, if that makes sense to you. Absolutely, it does. Mm-hmm. So um, here at Black Girl Nerds, we talk about lots of geeky and nerdy things. <laughs> what yes. is a geeky or nerdy trait about you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Okay. I'm going to be go super geeky, which is, I really like the, all the technology and stuff. I'm, I'm in our household, I'm the person who fixes the internet. Nice. <laughs> I'm, the first, I'm the person who tries out all the new apps and makes the suggestion for the, 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 the news, trying out the new things. So I'm, I'm, I'm into it. And I think that I'd like to think that I got, get some of that from my mom. My mom, um, who originally left college to go with my dad and get married, like a lot of women did in the 50s, mm-hmm. um, finished, when she did go back and finish college, she studied um, accounting with computer applications. And so she literally learned to use punch cards. She knew Fortran and wow. she's still, she's my, 
my mom's alive. She just doesn't do these things anymore. But she she knows how to. She knew how to like, you know, code and Fortran and assembly language and you know, all this. So she's like the hidden figures of her day. <laughs> well, oh my gosh, when she saw hidden figures, something, she responded in a way that took took just uh, took me off guard. Um, so she went to my parents met at Howard, and so you know the story takes place in Virginia. Mm-hmm. So. She was studying architecture, one of two women and in our class. And so I think it was like mind blowing to think that just down the way that there were these women that had these jobs. It was like a path that she never knew that was available. And so she had a really strong reaction to that movie in a way that I was a little wistful, I think, you know? Aww. Yeah. Um, it was interesting, but um, she was re- she she loved the film, of course. Yeah. But I could imagine my mom would have been really good at doing that yeah. that kind of work. My mom, we used to tease my mom. My sister, I have a sister, and uh, she and I used to tease her because what around the time she was like really into the computers and things, she was also like sitting down like like playing video games, and we're like, "You are a total <laughs> nerd." So I think my nerdiness, I'm like inheriting it, you know, I'm <laughs> from her. That's awesome. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for talking to us about your film. You guys, please check out Sided, High, um, Sided Eyes, Feeling Heart. It's premiering here at the Toronto International Film Festival. Is there any films that you're looking forward to? I mean, obviously you've got a film presenting here, but do you plan on seeing any movies yourself? I thought I was going to see <laughs> some movies, but I don't know if I'm actually going to have time to, which is a little sad, but I'm so, you, you don't know how excited we are to be here. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not kidding when I said finishing the film was the goal. So we see all of the rest of this being yeah. here as a great honor, but icing on the cake. And um, and so I was trying to see the Grace Jones film this morning, but I missed that screen. I saw it this morning. It was amazing. <laughs> okay. And another situation where there was so many aspects of her life that I was just, like, blown away and didn't oh. know. So. Oh, good. And yeah. The, it's, there's, like, three films about tennis here, so I like to play <laughs> tennis, so I want to see uh, at least the documentary on that. And, yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't know what I'll be able to catch. I'm leaving on a Sunday afternoon. I have to get back and teach and do some, you know, life, get back to my fin- <laughs> do some more stuff related to Hansbury, but yeah. yeah. But um this is there's, there's this is a great film festival. Yeah. And um I'm I'm really pleased that this is where we're having our world premiere. Well, congratulations to you. I mean, this is a long time coming. You said since 2004 you've been working on this film and here you are at TIFF. So, I know you put your heart and soul into it. So, congrats to you. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. A black police officer seeks revenge after being egregiously profiled and assaulted by his colleagues in this searing political satire by actor-director Corey Bowles. Corey Bowles is a Montreal-born, Nova Scotia-raised actor, director, and choreographer. Best known for his role as Corey in Trailer Park Boys, he is the director of short films such as Scavengers, Heart of Rhyme, and Anatomy of Assistance, the latter two of which has screened at the festival. Black Cop is his first feature-length film and is an expansion of his 2016 short of the same name. Thanks so much for listening to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'm your host. Very excited here over at the Toronto International Film Festival. As you know, we've been watching a lot of movies and we've been interviewing some directors. And I'm sitting now here with director Corey Bowles. 
The film Black Cop is currently screening here at TIFF, and we're going to talk about it. Corey, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's pretty great. <laughs> Listen, I love this film. I really did. I, I think it's a film that's needed. Um, I felt like with everything going on, with state-sanctioned police violence going on, that you know I needed to have something to feel like, okay, this is the way we're being marginalized and oppressed by, by law enforcement. So your film kind of reflects that. Um, but I, I want to ask you, what inspired you to write and bring the story of Black Cop to the big screen? Uh, just, I guess, everything that's been happening. I, I feel like no matter what we say sometimes, uh, you're, you're silenced, you know? And I, I think that uh, most, of my, most of my films explore, explore institutions and, and social structures and power structures and, um, and how our, our characters in our community or people in our community uh, navigate those things. So um, you, there was a, a few incidents, as I suppose, back, back around to 2014, I guess, uh, where, you know, there's profound sadness and depression collectively. You could just feel it. And I think I, I needed to, uh, I needed to start figuring out how to, how to exercise that out and get that out of my system, you know, without just, uh, arguing on, on Twitter. <laughs> I actually saw a couple of your arguments on Twitter. Oh, um, yeah, no, every day, every day. <laughs> I deal with the same thing. Yeah. You know, I kind of jumped into this because I'm so excited about the movie. Can you give our listeners that don't know anything about Black Cop kind of a quick elevator pitch? Sure, yeah. Day in the life of a black police officer that is profiled off duty and um, reaches a breaking point, snaps, and takes it out and, and dishes out uh, the same thing into the privileged community, sort of a reversal. I, I always call it the ju a just desserts type thing, mm. you know, but um, yeah, and it's it's taking place during a high profile trial, yet another one where a police officer is going to get acquitted so as he's listening to that he um, he's, he's driven to do something mm, yes, indeed one thing that stands out in this film is, uh, one thing that I noticed none of the characters have names, yeah. you know there's Black Cop, there's Rookie Cop um, but there's one character that's the victim of police violence where we do see his name. Was that intentional? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, everyone, well, everyone in the movie is labeled. I, I go with labels. That's mm. it. Um, and and the person we we focus on, or the person that's at the center, that's the name that's sort of forgotten throughout until the end. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think I it wasn't so much a. A reason they just needed to name him. You know, he needed to have something. So at the end, at the end of it all, that's that's what's left. Is and that's who we. During all of these things, this is who we. No matter what, we still forget. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, our arguments and our justifications and everything else always just seems to bury uh, that person. Yeah, it reminded me of the Sandra Bland case yeah. and the hashtag say her name yeah. so that's why I was curious to know if that was the intention there yeah yeah sure. we, we have it on the signs he has a name yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's so profound could you relate at all to the lead protagonist black cop in any way and is any of what you wrote based on similar experiences that you've encountered with law enforcement sure uh, I, I mean yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because it's one of the talks me and Ronnie were having, and we didn't have to really say anything and share our experiences. We've just all dealt with it. It's one of those things where we have, you know, we have 
but police, police, we know police presence, we understand police presence, and it's just a part of our life. And I, I, I've had experiences where I've called the police, and I, they've just went right past the reason why I've called and just went straight to me. And my brother, worse off, my brother's much darker and much bigger. So first, you know, automatically he's a threat. Mm. Um, Ronnie, I guess, yeah, I mean, there's so many, right? There's so many. You just get looked at, you get stopped, you fit the description, and sometimes that description is simply a red hat or something. Or, yeah. So, and other than that, um, some of the some of the monologues. There's a story there about the school. That's that's true to life. That's my life. That was what happened to the principal. And that's how I got suspended for, you know, being called racial names. And then when I finally did something about it, I was told that you know I was I had anger problems and. When you, when you fight back, every, you know, <laughs> they fight back, they remove you from the, from the system. So. And one of the things I really appreciated about this movie, even though it is fictionalized, it felt very real. And you intercut like, a lot of actual real footage into the film. So was your intention to make this story something that you felt like could happen in today's headlines? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, because it is what's happening. So mm-hmm. I wanted to... Um, you, you know, it's a, it, you just keep reminding that these things are happening, and this is—it's very real. Mm-hmm. So, it, as much as this movie sometimes is seen as as, as absurd, it's mm-hmm. it's not. It's Tuesday for us. Yeah. So, um, but with respect to the black cops character, mm-hmm. kind of turning the tables and racially profiling white people. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that's something that you think would actually happen? Uh, could be happening. <laughs> well, you know, according to a lot of people, yes, you know, but uh, no, it's not. I mean, I guess a good a good example is, uh, you know, there's something I always that I have that the statement that keeps going by is is that I use as a mantra when I was writing this is when people always say, "Well, there's black cops too," mm-hmm. you know, "There's black cops too," and I was like, "Okay, well, let's let's just let's do this for a minute and let's." Let's work with your statement, and I'll I'll show you what Black Hawk will look like doing it. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's it's. I think it's. I'm sorry, I'm kind of stuck on this one, but it's because uh, <laughs> there's there's like a shift that happens with this character. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the beginning, you know, a lot of people within the community resent him because mm-hmm. he's a cop, and they feel like he's against them. Mm-hmm. But then. He turns around and he is, in fact, racially profiling white people, and he becomes sort of the enemy of um, the bigger enemy, I mm-hmm. guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So, what prompted that shift with his character? Because I, I really like that dichotomy that was sort of explored. I, I, you know, a lot of it is a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is he's listening to a radio station called the Roost, mm-hmm. which is you know, which is yeah, is named after you know. Malcolm X's, the chickens are coming home the roost, you know, so it's like, it's kind of it was one of those instances of we've, he's had enough, and I think that being profiled, and the moment where he almost is, he's almost the real ending of this movie, if it were real, is he probably died in that moment, Yeah, you know the I was so over. scared was like, <laughs> like, <laughs> so then, uh, to take it to another place, almost in alternate reality is, um, was, was taking, I, I really wanted to take a lot of the justifications and apply them and, and use them to the advantage to say, okay, well, why don't we use your same arguments? Um, they shouldn't have came out of them. He should have complied. 
He's, he didn't, what do you expect? He fit the description when the description is one article of clothing. So I wanted to use all of those things and I felt that he as a character was like, okay, I've had it, I'm gonna do that. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that his, his need to do something and his need to, and, and partially, you know, probably, and Ronnie can speak to this more because I, 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 I try not to force feed him some of my intentions, but I think it's the, the idea too that he is hated and he's trying yeah. to overcome that as well. I mean, it's incredibly complex if you're, if you're in the community. This is funny because we had a black cop on set okay. um, during that profiling scene. And he was, he was saying, yeah, he remembers this and, and what it's like. And he's, he deals with this mistrust and a sense of betrayal daily. Yet he just tries, he's like, I've got to be in the community, I've got to knock on doors, um, I've got to be the best cop I can be because this is, this is my way of fighting this. And it's an uphill battle for him. At the same time, he's mistrusted by, he feels, by his own colleagues. Right. Which is like, yeah. So I think that eventually he, and he had said, there are times when I've, deep down, I've, I felt this too. Yeah. Like, so, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. It does. And, and one thing I was curious to know, too, is going back to the actual footage of community protests, yeah. um, of police brutality, why, why did you want to insert those images into the film? Um, I, I, wanted, I think I wanted people to, you know, people always look at protests, especially in our community, as, as violence or mm. thuggy, and all of a sudden we're hate groups they only look at so I wanted to in insert those things to to show to, to basically show a much larger scale of people. this is what we all feel so I think that uh, and, and again it's because I, I mean I feel it a lot of those a lot of those things are you know yeah I want I'm out on the streets too you know um, so I think yeah I wanted to show the, the face of defiance I wanted to show people anger not just as news not just as as people framing it. I want to frame it. I want to frame how I feel about when we protest mm -hmm. a little more than than how they frame it, because we don't get to frame it. Right. It's always what we see is always framed by some person throwing it on YouTube with a headline, you know, BLM thugs strike again, or this and that, or, or the angry rioters are setting fire, and you know, so I decide to frame. It I mean, not only people on YouTube, but news networks. Yeah, news networks <laughs> are the big one. You yeah. Know, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, and yeah, and I wanted to show uh, also use use news verbatim that that smear mm -hmm. that smear what victims or smear these campaigns. And, right. Yeah. That's that's profound. But, you know, without revealing too much, there's an intense moment between Black Cop, who's a man, um, and Rookie Cop, a woman, and both are black, but they come from completely different backgrounds. Can you talk to us a little bit about their roles and their relation to one another in the story? Sure. Um, my, my rookie cop is, uh, is not tainted yet. You know, she's, she's got uh, the same intentions that he probably did. Um, I think there's, there's, for me, she's a bit of hope. But at the same time, she's a moral compass, a moral voice for him. Um, and I, I wanted. Uh, she's in in that position where you know sometimes, it sometimes it's impossible to, 
it, her intentions are right. Everything is, is right. She's got the right idea. She's strong. She'll, she'll, you know, but at the same time, it's, uh, yeah, it, that was a hard one to explain. He's, <laughs> he's jaded. She's not. Yeah, um, that's what I got from that. Yeah, and I think that he's, yeah, like, I, I, I mean, there's one quip she, ne she knocks back at him, which I'm, I really like, but, uh, like when he, he drops that, I mean, I, that I mean that little thing, that little exchange. That's I mean I've that's been my attitude towards things a lot. Where I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, I really, and I've sometimes gotten that from my peers as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like um, she's a bit above all that, but mm -hmm. yeah, I think she's gonna. Yeah, it's, it's a hard one. Like he's he's got to respect her, but yeah, but she's and and she knows it's him. Exactly. I don't know if that answers that. No, it's it a does. Tough one. <laughs> it is. It's, but I, I just love that dynamic between those two. That oh, one good. moment. Obviously, I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's a really um, profound moment in the film. The car. The car or the, the last? The last between oh, yeah. the confrontation and the yeah. parking garage, I yeah, believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. Yeah. Yeah, well, she... There's, yeah, there's a few confrontations between these two characters. Yeah, that one, yeah, that one's a pretty Im important one for me because it's... Uh, yeah, well, she feels betrayed, yeah. I think. You know, that's mm -hmm. not to give out... I hope I didn't give anything away, but, <laughs> I, you know... Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, this film, um, probably by white people, they may see it as anti-white. Sure. Uh, do you think that this is a teachable film? Uh, what do you hope viewers will walk away after seeing this? <laughs> yeah, and those are for the white people that don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's it's interesting. It certainly was. You know, I think uh, maybe about two months ago when I realized it was coming, it was coming out. I, I was I had sort of a bit of a breakdown. Mm -hmm. I was a little like I wasn't weeping on the floor or anything, but I was really afraid because I was like, once this goes out there, it's not coming back. And I was like, well, no. Here's you know, people like to tell you what you are. People like to tell you what you believe in. You know, I don't know how many times I've been called a, you know. I've been saying I support a hate group because, you know, I, you know, I give money to school kids or whatever because through organizations that people are afraid of. So I was like, oh, no, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to get labeled and then, or this is going to happen or people are going to get the wrong idea. And, I, and then I was like, so be it, you know, like, um, if they get the wrong idea, it's because um, they're afraid of what's happening in it or, you know, and what's happening in it is just that you, you get a chance of a forced perspective. So I, I hope people, you know, I hope people see it as, as you know, he's a human. He is, he is a, he, I don't, I almost swore there, but he is a human, and he is going through a complex sense of of confusion, of depression, of mourning, of panic, of all of these things that are happening when you feel um, this immense amount of silencing or you're watching. You know, children die, mm -hmm. and I wanted, I wanted to explore that in a way where people would be forced to listen to. I really wanted to be in your face, yeah. which you know, I literally have them in your face. But um, and I hope people just listen to them. Um, but if they don't, so so be it, I guess. Going back to, I, I've thought about what I've wanted people to think or, or feel, and I, I I I can't really answer that because I don't know. Because I want a lot of things, I just hope that I just hope that they listen to him. That's it. Yeah. 
I hope that they listen to him and maybe they'll keep the conversation going and maybe they'll get a different perspective yeah, that's about it I don't know but that for the white people but, <laughs> yeah. well Black Cop is the movie to see Corey thank you so much for talking to us thank you here at Black Girl Nerds really incredible film if you guys are at TIFF check it out it is screening this week And our next segment featuring KB is about the film The Mountain Between Us. A surgeon, played by Idris Elba, and a journalist, played by Kate Winslet, must rely on each other for survival when the small plane that they share crashes into the wilderness. The following segment features actor Bo Bridges and cinematographer Mandy Walker. The Mountain Between Us, distributed by 20th Century Fox, will be released in theaters nationwide on October the 6th. Black Girl Nerds, and I really appreciate you taking time to just chat with us. I like the name of that. Oh, thanks. What is, where does that come from? So it's really a site just for women of color who appreciate a lot of different geeky things and pop culture and uh-huh. new films, so um, cool. we'd love to cover everything. So we're a growing media outlet, and yeah. your team has been wonderful, and they're like, do you want to talk to Bo? I'm like, of course, of course. Cool. So yeah, so thank you for doing this. Yeah. Um, so first off, I saw, I saw the film yesterday. You know, it's really, really great. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, you haven't? Tonight will be my first oh, time. Oh, okay. I've seen bits and pieces because we did some uh, looping uh, mm-hmm. on the, the airplane crash scene. Mm-hmm. So I saw a rough draft of that. I haven't seen it. Oh, well, I think that you're in for a treat because it's, it's really good. The final cut is great. Um, but of course, your character is the pilot on this mm-hmm. fateful day. Um, and he has mm-hmm. to bring his dog with him. This is his companion on every yeah. flight, right? Yeah. So what's a unique item that you have to take with you when you fly? Oh, it's funny because we have two uh, French bulldogs, uh-huh. my wife and I, <laughs> and they're little pups. And we keep saying, should we bring them this time? Should we bring them this time? Because... Uh, we notice, I mean, a lot of people bring their dogs yeah. right on the plane, especially if they're small, like mm-hmm. uh, Frenchies are. So we haven't done it yet, because they're still just right around a, a year old. Oh, okay, so still very They're uh, Buster and Happy. Mm-hmm. They have their own Instagrams. Oh, right? really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they're Instagram famous, Buster and Happy. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, but the dog, this dog in the movie, uh, Mountain Between Us, was amazing. We... Um, one of the first questions I had when the part came my way was, am I going to have to get in a small plane and do some crazy stuff? I said, because that, I want to find out more about that. And I said, no. Uh, and so what we did is, uh, Honey, the director, uh, put out, a, I thought, a marvelous plan. Spent a lot of time on how to do that crash scene. And he had uh, a plane in a hangar up on a gimbal, you know, about ah, okay. three, four hundred feet in the air. Okay. And uh, with all kinds of cranes attached and stuff. And then three of us got in there, the people, and then here comes the dog. And he's sitting right next to me on the mm-hmm. co-pilot seat. And it was crazy, because he had to, I mean, all of us had to hit marks and stuff. I was pretty much in, in, in the pilot seat. But uh, Idris and Kate were running back and forth when this thing was being thrown all over the place. Right. And the dog had to, at a certain time, go back 
you know, the back like part to get of the into plane. The, right, right. Because he was get going his, for the snacks, and he was like, you, you were like, don't get in the snacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he had to be in an exact spot because Hani's idea was that the crash would take uh, would be one shot. So the camera was on a line that ran right down the length of the airplane, and the camera was moving back and forth. And uh, you know, we had like probably 25 takes on it to, to get the one that he wanted. And the dog was amazing because he was the unknown factor. No one knew what was going to happen. And right in front of us, up at the front of the airplane, the floor was open. It had to be because of the way the gimbal was set up. Uh, okay. So it would have been a bad scene if the dog had gone down. Yeah, right. The Just hole or me. Oh my goodness. And uh, I was belted in, mm -hmm. but the dog couldn't be because he had to move to the back of the plane. So I had to kind of have a hold of him. Right. And then he had, of course, uh, trainers up in front and in back, you know, giving him like signals and stuff. And, oh, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Wow. And that's so funny because that, that was going to be my next question. Like, technically, how did you guys do it, the scene? But that sounds really intense. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but 25 takes. Ooh. Yeah, and we were thrown around hard. Oh. So I was heavily padded up, and I told uh, Kate and Idris that they should get padded. And I, I know Kate was. I'm not sure about Idris. Yeah, I think uh, when you see the final cut, like she definitely is thrown around a oh, yeah. lot more. So yeah. I'm glad that you recommended that she yeah. get padded because when I was watching, I was like, dang, like how, like yeah. physically, this is really intense on the body. Just even shooting the scene, it looked like. Yeah. So yeah. Oh wow. Um, but yes, I think that the dog is probably. Another star. <laughs> oh, yeah, and of course, he goes on and plays a big part of the rest of the movie. Right, exactly. So, um, so did filming kind of in this hangar, um, in this small, tiny plane in this hangar, did this create maybe like a little bit of a phobia for you after? Were you kind of like, oh, I don't know that I want to get on planes for a little bit? Uh, I guess so, but I mean, I travel so much just in mm -hmm. business, mm -hmm. it's just kind of a part of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, so, no, not to. So having the kind of iconic career that you've had uh, thus far, why did you choose this role? And then tell me a little bit about what's next for you. Well, um, yeah, I, I've been very fortunate to have uh, a long career in this business. It's, it's a, a tough line of work to sustain a living, in, so I really feel blessed. It's been kind of an up and down career for me, but I, I really appreciate uh, blessings that I've had as far as the stories that have come my way. For me, the story is the most important. Uh, and uh, you know you know it right away when a good one comes down to the pike. And this one, I, I love the story when it came my way. And to work with two actors that I really admire, Idris and Kate, and Hani, I knew him by reputation, the director. Uh, so I knew it was a great opportunity. I mean, it's a small role, but I get to kind of help kick it off yeah. the story, and you know, it was, it was a good experience. And so next, um, actually, tomorrow I'm leaving to go to Minneapolis, mm -hmm. where my daughter is living right now. She got her master's at the University of Minnesota, and uh, in uh, providing arts to underserved communities. That's her. She's also an actress, and we wrote a play together oh. called Acting the First Six Lessons. 
Samuel French uh, publishes it. And uh, we wrote it about five years ago, I performed it in Los Angeles. And tomorrow I'm going there uh, to do a reading of the play of a nice audience. And, uh, uh, you know, that's going to be really fun. I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, and we may tour it around. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, we're doing it at uh, the Illusion okay. Theater. Okay. And, um, and then, uh, I'm sorry, we're not doing it at the Illusion. We're doing, I, I can't remember the address of it. But uh, anyway, if you look it up, it's, you can Google it. Um, and then I just got back from Ireland mm -hmm. recently where I did a movie called Supervised about a bunch of retired superheroes living in old people's homes. Oh, really? <laughs> and we have one last uh, mission, and <laughs> our superpowers are going off all screwed up. You know? Oh, that sounds fun. So wait, so what superpower does your character have then? I can uh, disappear, and if I took your hand, you'd mm -hmm. go with me. Ah! But, you know, I'm having trouble with that power now, and uh, I have to really kind of bear down when I need to do it and when I do uh, I uh, break wind and so I, I have this terrible smell <laughs> so every time people you can, yeah people can detect that if they can't see me they know that I was they in know the that area you're there. <laughs> yeah I had so much fun with it and I was in there with an old buddy of mine Lou Gossett he plays one of the yeah, yeah. and Tom Berenger Vanilla Flanagan. Uh, that was great. And I loved that one. And then I'm going to do um, a movie called Elsewhere uh, in about a month up in Vancouver. So I'll be back in Canada. Wow. Uh, yeah, so it's. You're busy, but these all sound incredible. And it's great that you get to do something you know, uh, so personal to you with your daughter, and you guys are able to oh, yeah. do this plan that's together. The best. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. I love working with family. Something that my dad kind of got going mm -hmm. back in the day. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So, I would be remiss if I didn't ask, at TIFF, outside of your film, because you haven't seen it, right? you haven't seen the final cut, what other films are you looking forward to see, even if you don't get to catch them here, um, that are kind of premiering here or debuting here? What other films? Um, yeah, you know, I haven't looked to see what what's up. Um, uh, <coughs> I don't know if my brother movie, uh, what is it? Uh, Something of a young man living in New York or something. You know? Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, I don't think it's not, I don't think that, it's premiering here, but I know which film. Right. I know which. And then there's there's yeah. a movie coming out called It. I've been hearing a lot about that. Hit, yes. Yeah. I don't think they're showing it here. I think here the big ones the big ones here will probably be Mother, um, obviously Molly's Game, uh, The Mountain Between Us, mm -hmm. um, and then there are a few larger uh, Papillion. Um, there is Professor Marsden and the Wonder Women. Um, so like a few, yeah, like yeah. yeah, I won't have time to see him, unfortunately. Yeah, I like to, I like to catch him. I get, uh, I find I, I see most of the films uh, later on in the year because mm -hmm. I get films through the Academy right. to vote, and that's what I look at most of That's them. nice. And then you can like allot a certain time to just really sit there and enjoy them and, and kind of yeah. relax and watch them all. But <laughs> yeah. So one final question, sure. uh, because obviously you know we are a geek culture uh, media outlet. What's one thing that you geek out about? Oh boy. Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, my daughter, who I mentioned mm -hmm. in Minneapolis, she is uh, married to a physicist. Ah. So that's a little geeky. Yes, yes. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's just about to get his doctorate. He also uh, went for his doctorate at the University of Minnesota. And I love talking to Gordy, is his name, about uh, all matters uh, in the physics world. I, it's hard for me to understand a lot of them. The one that he's, uh, he's been talking to me about is this, this new thing where have you heard about getting in a tube and that just shoots you like 400 miles an hour? Ah, yes, I have. I have actually my degrees are in biology, so yes, I actually have heard about this yeah, tube. I think that's absolutely <laughs> fascinating. It's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like, I wonder how, I mean, I know people are, are trying to figure out like how they could actually do it, survive, crash land. Like there's like a whole system around yeah. it, but yeah. <laughs> and I'm very curious about all things sustainable. Mm -hmm. New forms of energy, uh, other than yeah. oil. Right. Yeah. I guess that's all a little geeky. <laughs> it is. It is. So thank you so much. I really appreciate Great it. Great talking to it you. It was wonderful talking to you as well, and I hope the rest of your press tour goes well today. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Uh, I'm KB with Black Girl Nerds again, and it's wonderful to be able to chat with you, Mandy Walker, a cinematographer on the mountain between us. So, wow. Um, so, I like to say that while this film centers really heavily on, obviously, the relationship between Alex and Ben, um, that the third star is really kind of that breathtaking scenery. I mean, it's gorgeous. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about um, kind of what the process was in creating this, and also if you had a hand in scouting this particular location. Well, I did, yeah. Uh, I think in this movie, the landscape is like a character. It's very important that um, the audience can go on the journey with Alex and Ben and feel what they feel. And I think when Penny first started talking to me, one of the really important things I always kept in the back of my mind was... Um, it's beautiful, but it's also dangerous. They're in a dangerous situation. They could die at any minute. They come across a lot of obstacles, as you know, because you've <laughs> yes. seen the film. Um, but there is a beauty to the environment, and, and so I had that in the back of my mind all the time. And, it, and also that it would be epic and grand, and uh, so we shot, like, on 65mm digital to, to have the big sort of vista landscape shots. And... Uh, and yeah, and the, and also that the camera was um, very elegant, and we we tried to do the journey with the characters, so the camera's always moving with them as they they go through the environments, which was a challenge because we're in like four foot of snow, yeah. up to ten thousand feet, eleven thousand feet. So we, would, my job was you know to work out how logistically we would do that. So we had sled dollies, we got cranes on special tractors to be able to, we sent them up in the helicopter over three days. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so it was logistically, uh, I mean, you don't, when you watch a film, you don't see it so much, but logistically it was a challenge and it was exciting to me. That's, you know, one of the reasons I love doing this film. Yeah, so uh, tell me a little bit about just your background in terms of, so what are some films that you watched 
when you were younger that may have influenced your choice um, in getting into this business and becoming a cinematographer? Um, I think that, well, I always loved cinema when I was young, and, my, and also art and photography, mm -hmm. and I had an interest in that. And my um, parents used to take me to a lot of foreign language films. So that kind of opened my eyes to the rest of the world, and that's why I think I consider myself an international cinematographer, because I'm Australian, but I've shot in different places in the world, and that excites me to be, because I've never been at the top of a mountain above the tree line in my life. Oh, really? Until before this movie? Before this movie? <laughs> no. And oh. so, again, scouting these locations was very important, and it's about also your emotional reaction to the locations, and so Hanny and I looked at it like that, so whatever part of the film, what was going on in the journey for the characters would be pertinent to what locations we chose, you know, and how we, we um, approached it. For instance, you know, when Kate falls into the lake and we had that beautiful misty valley, we created that. So we planned it and we created, you wouldn't believe how huge <laughs> the smoke, we had this, it's called the Tube of Death, and they run this tube of uh, plastic and it lets out smoke, and it was in... It must have run a couple of miles. And we created, yeah, because of the temperature, we put the smoke out and it settled in the valley all day. So we wanted it to look like that because when Ben can't see properly what's going on, it created more tension in, in what was going on in, in terms of the, uh, what was going on with the characters. Wow. So you mentioned that like it was really important for you guys in scouting this location yeah. how you felt. Yeah. So what were some of your like kind of initial emotions when you first stepped? Because I mean, a lot of it happened in Vancouver. A lot of the yes. So wow. Like, what did you feel when you first got on top of that mountain? I mean, obviously, this was your first time too. So yeah. probably fear. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly. For instance, you know that scene where Idris goes to the peak of the mountain. Mm -hmm. My first reaction there, I was so frightened, and the top of the mountain is only about like 12 foot wide, oh, the area that you get oh, wow. stand on. And I, it's funny because I took stills as we were walking around doing our scouting uh, with Hanny. You know, we look at the lenses and we look at different shots. And I can, a lot of those shots I took are exactly what we did. Like we planned them to a T, you know. Um, not everything, but... but because a lot of them we'd get, the actors would come and they would, you know, do a certain way and block a certain way and then we'd cover it. But we wanted the camera to always be moving with them. So we had to work out different ways of being able to get the camera to certain situations and being able to move. So, but, uh, yeah, for instance, getting to the peak of that mountain, it's scary, but it's breathtaking. You know, when you get there and you stand and you look around 360 degrees, and that was what we wanted the audience to feel. So... That's an example of, of one location where it was about the emotion, you know. Yeah, and I will say that, um, so there are two scenes that like really jumped out at me that I was like, man, this is breathtaking. So the first one is actually seen in the trailer. So when they're in the airplane and she's looking out and you see, I mean, it's stunning. Yes. And then the second one is probably the one that you're referencing. It's just when it's the first time I think he steps out and there's kind oh, yeah. of a, a wide shot of him from above, which mm -hmm. I picked up. I was like, so I was like, yeah, but it's like a wide shot of him. Well, actually, he's on a crane. Oh my yeah. gosh, he does run a crane? Yeah. So I saw, and I was like, this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I guess, what's your favorite scene? Um, In the movie? Yeah. I think it would have to be when Idris gets two. I had two. And it's, and it's also because I think the actors in that situation were so in incredibly brave and it looks real, you know, it's real. What we did was real. We had them on top of the mountain at minus 38 
and 11,000 feet and you know, altitude walking on a glacier. And so when Idris does that walk up the top, the peak of the mountain, the camera goes with him, it walks 360 degrees around on a steady cam. And to me, that is how I felt when I got there, you know. And um, the other one, I suppose, is um, when Kate falls through the water and she comes out. When she comes, she actually, we had a tank on location. Oh, okay. It was minus 30 degrees. And we spent a lot of time in pre-production saying, how are we going to do this scene when she comes out of the water? Should we, maybe we should do it in the studio where it's warm. Or should we do it um, in Vancouver where it's only two degrees, not minus 38? And Kate went, no, I'll do it. I'll do oh, it wow. for real. And, and Hanny was saying, okay, Kate, you only have to do it once. Because coming out of the water wet in that temperature, you kind of snap, freeze, and you get hypothermia. And um, so we had tents and towels, and she did it once. And then um, he said, great, Kate. And she said, oh, I'll do it again, Henny. Let's do it again. Come on. <laughs> she did it three times. And oh, wow. she was so brave and amazing. Oh, so I think for me that was really exciting. We were all cheering at the end because she was very brave. They both were incredible. You know, went through a lot of that, you know, walking through snow above their knees and you're just dragging her on that sled through the... That was all real. It's a lot of physical work that goes exactly. into this film. So, mm. wow. I can't believe she did it three times. Like, yes, I, I, just, know. I, I don't know. But they were all standing like, there with their heated blankets yeah, and a tent. Like, how did we go? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Wow. That, um, that is incredible. No, she is amazing. Wow. So um, talk a little bit more, I guess, in depth about some of the challenges that mm-hmm. came along with shooting. Because, obviously, the snow is monstrous yep. and you talked about that of like walking through like four feet of snow yeah so what other challenges did this, this well I suppose it was uh, getting the camera to be able to move in those environments so we had um, a technocrane we had a special tractor for our technocrane that would get it to not on top of the mountain but when we were down below in um, about 3,000 feet we could drive it in and so we could not make footprints so that we could move with the actors on a long arm and not have, uh, you know, people or or camera dollies or anything like that. And we had our dolly was a sled that the grips made so they could push it through the snow. Yeah, we had actually three versions of it. So things like that were were challenges that I had to work out in pre-production and also how do we get a crane to the top of the mountain because we did. Right. (laughs) And so we had it slung in... Uh, helicopter would have a big sling with a basket and took it up over three days and so things like that were the challenges you know that I had never had to to, no had to experience no exactly and so and just also our cameras we were shot digital on 65 mil and 35 mil anamorphic and but up on the mountain we're on 65 mil and um, we couldn't turn the camera off so it wasn't rolling, but it was turned on because it would freeze. Yeah. So it had to be on 24 hours a day. And we left um, a second unit on top of the mountain to do a dawn shot, these two guys that were freezing, and they had to sleep with the camera in their sleeping bag because <laughs> to keep, keep it warm, warm. Yeah. and the batteries. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I know what scene you're talking about because it's beautiful. Like the, the sunset yes. coming up. Yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> it's it beautiful. was worth it. So it's worth it, right? Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. So um, have you seen kind of the rough cut of, you know, the film that I saw, rather? Yeah. So is there a scene that was left out that you would have wanted uh, to be in there? Um, you know what? I always forget when I've seen it cut, mm-hmm. and I think um, that 
Kenny did the right thing for the story? Because, you know, there's always some things missing or things that get swapped around. And I always forget, I mean, I've spent four weeks doing the digital grading of the film. So I've spent four weeks with the final one. And it's funny because I'll be watching and go, wait a minute, where's that bit where the... But I understand why it's missing. And for me... um, there was a couple of... They were still doing cutting as we were, as I was doing my um, finals. There was a couple of shots that I really missed and I kept thinking, I really miss them and then all of a sudden they came back. And so uh, I was really excited yeah. about that. So for me, it's I understand and I have to let that go because it's story's most important thing, um, storytelling. So... Uh, but there's always a couple of, you know, sunrises or something that we did that I love that never end up in the movie. But in this, they went back in, so it was oh, great. Oh, that's awesome. That's so awesome. So, outside of The Mountain Between Us, what other film are you excited to see here this year at TIFF? Oh, I'm so, um, there's a few films I'd like to see. I'm not going to get time to see any, though, oh. which is a shame. I've already started another movie, and I have to go straight back. and. Right, right. And, uh, but I really want to see Darren Aronofsky's movie, Mother. Mother. And um, uh, who, what, who's the... Um, is it Guillermo del Toro's film? Yes. yes. That, I really... The Shape of Water. The Shape of Water. Those two movies I'm dying to see. So I have to wait now till I go back home. I know. I haven't seen either of them. And so I'm trying to, like much like you, you know, it's not like we get to see as many films as we want to. Yes. So like, I still have a long list of things that I want I to see. I bet you do. But um, this one was stunning and it was beautiful. So Thank you. Thank you for that. And so one just final question. Yes. Obviously because we are a website that just embraces geeky culture. Yes. So what is something that you geek out about that most people don't know? Um, <laughs> that people don't know? Uh... Well, obviously cameras and lenses, <laughs> that's something I geek out about, um, because that's my job. Um, I suppose that's it, really. Yeah. Nothing outside of that, really, you know. I mean, I'm on Instagram and things like that, but that's <laughs> not really geeky, I suppose. Right, like now it's just the thing to be on, right? Like yeah. Instagram, everyone. Everyone, I know. And it is, it is my favourite app, I have to say. But Mine too. My <laughs> daughter got me onto it, and she set it up, and then she'd say, Mum, you can't post more than once a day. Because one day I'd put three photos, she's going, oh no, stop, stop. <laughs> she's like telling you the etiquette of the yes, rules. Like, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, and, and you, yeah. And then there's a, this photo, that's not Instagram worthy, Mum. You don't post that. <laughs> wait, wait, so she screened your photos before you yeah, could yeah. put them up? Oh, that's well, so she's awesome. 19 and she's an art student, so, you know, I think she has a good opinion and oh, modern yeah. and, and, you know... Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I have my younger sister's 18. I have her do the same right. thing. So yeah. yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much oh, for thank talking you. to us. I really appreciate it. It was lovely. My pleasure. My pleasure. In our final segment, Carolyn interviews the cast from the TIFF film A Season in France. An African high school teacher, played by Erica Bonet, flees his war-torn country for France, where he falls in love with a French woman played by Sandrine Bonaire, who offers a roof for him and his family. Okay, so thank you so much, Sandrine and Eric, for having this interview with me about your film, A Season in France. Um, I saw the film last night at the premiere. I was there, and it was a very impactful film. It really hit me hard emotionally because I, myself, am an immigrant. I'm from Barbados, so I've been living in Canada for a while, and certain aspects of the story really connected with me and I was like it took there was some of the events took the breath from me because I was like that's my story and and I can and I connected with it 
So um, for you, Eric, you're playing a bass. He's the main character. And he's the father of two children. And this is a story about not only immigration, but about refugees, because there are two different things, yes? Um, could you tell me what it was like playing not only a black man who's an immigrant and a refugee in a, in a country, but as someone who has two children, he has the, that responsibility on him? Bon, je vais parler en français. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean. No, you can, you can yeah, speak in no. French, that's fine. Yeah. Um, en fait, euh, je pense que le fait d'être euh, réfugié, euh, c'est juste pour lui, euh, il pensait que c'était un élément anecdotique. Il se trouve que, que ça, ça, la, la, la complexité administrative a fait que ça prend plus de place dans sa vie qu'il ne, qu ne croyait. Okay. Do you understand? No. Oh, you want to translate? A little bit. I understand a little okay. bit. Okay. Uh, actually, at the beginning, he, for him, it was just an anecdotic story to be a refugee. But because of the, the red tape, the administrative heaviness, it started to, to take a lot more place mm -hmm. in his life than, than he was expecting. Yeah. Than he was expecting. Yeah. Yeah, because it's just one of the rebuilds his life. Uh, he voulait just re 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 refaire sa vie et puis uh, uh, mettre en place un nouveau destin pour sa famille. Et il se trouve que, que tout ça est, uh, le dépasse et il doit faire un choix parce qu'il n'a pas envie de vivre dans la clandestinité. You know, at the beginning, he just wanted to restart his life with his family. But with the situation developing, you know, he has to make choice. Uh, difficult choice because he doesn't want to live in clandestinity, in clandestinity either. You know, so he has, he is facing a wall. And it's surtout un homme qui veut juste, qui a juste besoin de de vivre comme tout un chacun, avec et puis dans l'amour et dans la dans la joie et dans la gaieté. He's just a guy who wants to live happy with his family, with love, happiness, and simply. Yeah, like a regular guy. Just regular. A regular guy, yeah. Yeah, he wants to be regular, but he has, because of all the red tape that he has to go through, it kind of hinders him doing that because there's there's the joyful moments when he's with his children and when he's with Carol, but then when he gets the letters, he refuses to read them because he, he kind of gets that feeling. He's like, if I read this, it's going to take away my moment of joy and it's going to ruin that because there's a few scenes where he's like, I'm going to wait. I don't want it to ruin to ruin this moment, but then he still has to kind of face reality, right? Because that that is kind of his reality. He wants to be happy, but he knows there's things hindering hindering that. How do you think, as a father, he was able to? I guess you could say compartmentalize or to mm. like yeah, yeah, yeah to yeah, compartmentalize absolutely. that yeah. That's I mean, I think that's ça the truc, c'est qu'il essaie de de compartimenter un peu sa vie parce qu'il essaie de protéger ses enfants. Il essaye de protéger sa famille, il essaye de protéger l'amour de, de, de sa vie, de, de, enfin, l'amour qu'il a en ce moment. Et, et, et en même temps, il est hanté par son passé, il est hanté par la réalité euh, administrative qui, qui fait que euh, ça devient complexe. Mais, en même, mais, je, mais ce que moi j'ai surtout découvert à travers ce personnage, c'est que... Euh, toutes ces personnes qui vivent ce type de situation 
malheureusement, on ne leur donne pas assez de compassion et d'empathie et d'amour. OK, so he has to compartmentalize his life, you know. He wants to protect his, his love for his family, his, uh, his role as a dad. And at, the same, and at the same time, he has to face this harsh reality. And he's realizing that in, uh, there is not enough compassion, not enough love in this world. Like it's for those people, it's you know. For those people, yeah. it's cruel. Even for, I mean, myself, as a human being, working on this movie, I just discovered that I used to be like uh, refugees or migrants or whatever you, I mean, ref people from, I, they used to be invisible for me. And for, unfortunately, they're human beings, they just, they just need, you know, to be, uh, um, to be um, accepted yeah. as a human being, because most of the time, we just neglected them. Yeah, and for, and for Carol, Sandrine, um, she herself is an immigrant. It's not pointed out immediately, because it's almost accepted that she is Parisian, but she's actually Polish, and how do you think it, her past is what allowed her to connect with Eric and his children, I guess you could say easier, because she was very accepting and she was very understanding of his, um, of, of his situation? Oui, elle comprend ça parce que, euh, alors, pour elle, on imagine que ça a été plus simple parce que c'est euh, plus de la part de ses parents qui ne sont plus là et qui, euh, donc elle doit prouver une, une identité française, mais qu'elle a, euh, qu a de toute façon. Mais comme les parents sont morts, il n'y a plus de traces de ça. Donc elle est. Euh, euh, donc c'est pour ça qu'elle n'a pas eu de passeport pendant un temps. Le alors, ce n'est pas un refus d'identité française, mais c'est un temps euh, d'administration pour prouver qu'elle est française. Oui, c'est différent pour elle, parce qu'elle est française, mais ses origines sont gone. Elles sont morts, ses parents sont morts, et elle n'a pas de papier. Il y a une période où elle n'a pas de papier. But she understands the yeah because of that she understands the situation of the other protagonist I guess yes. yeah right because I for Carol because she was not only understanding but she was very patient mm -hmm. she was very she was very patient with Abbas because there were moments when I was watching him like talk to her be more open with her because she's there she's like it's okay tell me what's wrong but he's not telling her even though she's explaining to him that I've been where you are I to some extent because she was like I didn't have my papers she identified with them and she was like she advised him and it was like listen to her listen to Carol she's giving you sound advice and <laughs> that's a woman perspective <laughs> a woman's perspective well to yeah. me it's, but it's, it's a, I think it's a matter of relationship in terms of men and women sometimes you just need to talk a little bit more right yeah. right and that's the relationship yeah, and for, for, for Carol, um, how do you think she, she felt when she, she realized that he wasn't listening to her? Because there's, there's that particular scene where she, the next day where she's like, I, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but she's like, did you not do what I tell you to do? And, and it kind of, and from then it was kind of like this, 
the straw that broke the camel's back for Abbas almost because he realized this situation isn't what I want or what I need. So how do you think she felt knowing that he kind of he ignored ignored her advice in that instance? Je pense que d'abord Abbas ne veut pas être un poids pour elle. C'est un homme qui veut rester dans la dignité même quand elle lui propose de de se marier, il pourrait accepter, les choses seraient beaucoup plus simples, mais il a sa dignité et il veut continuer à faire les choses par lui-même. Et ça, c'est, elle comprend tout ça. The fact is that she, she understands that uh, Abbas has his own dignity. You know, I mean, she offered him to get married, but he, he declined, he refused. Yeah. He refused because he wants to do, he wants to do it his own way. Mm. It's not that he doesn't want really want to listen to her, but he has to do. He wants to keep his own dignity and do his own stuff. Mm. Right. So, yeah. so at the end, what he does at the end, she, even though she's brokenhearted, she still kind of understands why he did what he did because I, I understood, but then I was still upset with him. I was like, why would you do this? <laughs> so, um, so I guess she still kind of understood, even though she her heart was broken, but she she understood where he was going. Euh, je pense qu'elle comprend qu'il a voulu la protéger parce que si elle, euh, elle continue à vivre avec lui et à le cacher chez elle ou, euh, elle risque, euh, elle risque de, de la prison elle risque euh, des amendes et, euh, et donc elle comprend, elle comprend que la, quand il lui dit qu'il l'aime instinctivement elle comprend qu'il ne la verra plus enfin qu'elle ne le verra plus et et voilà, et c'est un fait. Et de toute façon, Abbas n'a pas d'autre solution que de partir, puisque tout, euh, toute l'administration française est, euh, ne, ne l'accepte pas. Donc, euh, donc voilà, c'est une forme de fatalité, mais qu'elle comprend, puisqu'il n'y a pas d'issue possible. Elle comprend, elle est heartbroken, mais elle comprend qu'il veut la protéger. He wants to protect her because he knows the story is impossible. He's stuck. He's going to have to go back. He knows that he's not going to get be able to get his paper. And uh, when uh, he say or you say, I love you, whatever, they know that that's the last time they're going to see each other. Yeah. And it's over. It's over because are, it's fatal. It's, that's the fatality. There is no issue. Okay, and so she's um, she protect her because uh, she's taking mm -hmm. a lot of uh, risks. Yeah, yeah she's taking know? a lot of risks. She's she risking the prison. She's risking jail. Yeah. No, no. Okay, so my last question um, has to do with Etienne. So, do you think that what Etienne did was kind of the the driving force behind Abbas leaving? No, 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 because. Euh, parce que je pense que Étienne a fait son choix pour lequel Abbas n'était pas tellement d'accord parce qu'il trouvait que c'était un peu radical mais, euh, mais ça fait partie de, des, des moments où, 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 où ce type de situation rend un peu fou et, et puis ça c'est un choix possible mais qui, et Abbas a estimé que le sien il fallait qu'il préserve les gens qu'il aime et puis Étienne, par contre, n'avait rien à perdre. Étienne make a decision, make a decision. Abbas doesn't agree with it, 
those are the way it is. And, uh, but uh, Abbas has to protect the people he loves, and that's the way it is, you know? There is no... Uh, yeah, and probably uh, uh, Etienne doesn't have enough uh, <laughs> love to give. Okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. Um, thank you. feel more desperate. Yeah, he was a bit, yeah. Okay. yeah. So thank you so much, um, Sandrine, and thank you so much, Eric, for thank this. Thank you very and much. Thank you so much, interpreter. Thank you so much for this. It was a joy watching you on film, and it was a joy talking to you this evening, this thank afternoon as well. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds Podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Art19, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.